Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Good News Gospel series, and um, we're kind of in the, the second chapter of the gospel we're calling it, which is um, the fall. What is wrong with our world? How do we make sense of the, the brokenness that we find in our world? Um, and, and that would be thinking about the fracturing of relationship between ourselves and God, but it would also be uh, thinking about the fracturing of relationships between us and other people. Our friends, our families, our neighbors. And then um, another part of it, maybe that would be especially good to think about um, lately, especially, is thinking about what's, what's wrong with like, our world. There, there's something wrong um, with the climate in our world even. And so how do we make sense of this? And actually, um, the Christian faith has a way of understanding what's gone wrong with the world. And so that's what I want to spend our time talking about today. I'm going to read today's teaching text. It's a bit long, so I'll try to kind of um, do some exploration along the way. Um, it's in the book of Exodus, and we're going to like jump right into the middle of it. So let me give you like high-level introduction so you understand where we're going. Um, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. God is in the midst of making a promise to the people of Israel, and they're in the midst of promising back um, to God. Um, and one of the things I think you miss if you just read the book of Exodus front to back is you, um, because there's, a, there's long expo- ex- explanations of like the tabernacle, how God will dwell in their midst, you sort of miss the intention, which is God desires intimacy and connection with his people. And it's sort of like um, Genesis 2.0 in Exodus. God is still desiring um, connection with the people, and he wants the people to respond. So earlier in the book of Exodus, which we won't read today because it's it's quite long, um, Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and God has actually brought them deliverance from Pharaoh and from slavery. They're led out into the wilderness where Israel, the people of Israel, are grumbling and complaining. Moses then leads them to the foot of Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai um, is where we're getting the covenant relationship with God. Moses comes down from the mountain where God's presence is. There's a, there's a cloud, lightning, thunder. The presence of God could be physically seen by the people. He comes down with the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And um, Moses is really functioning as an intermediary in this time. And so what's happening is, is um, Moses is coming down and saying, do you want to make the covenant promise with God? And, and um, the, the biblical word for it is God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so they're making this, um, it, almost, it almost reads like a marriage ceremony, vows that are being had. And the people of Israel say, yes, I want to enter into this relationship with you. Moses goes back up on the mountain for 40 days for more instructions. Israel is waiting. And that's where we pick up in our text. So uh, today's teaching text comes from Exodus chapter 32, uh, verses 1 through 40. It's a little long, so it'll be on the screen here. When the people saw, can we get that on the screen there, Katie? Sorry. Um, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother. Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took them, took what they had handed him and made an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
Remember the, the Ten Commandments, ready? <laughs> like they're already, they're, they're already breaking one and two, right? It's been like 40 days. It's sad. It's kind of funny too. Um, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. After they sat down to eat and drink and got up and indulged in revelry. When the Lord said to Moses, so now um, God is talking to Moses Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. And they have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. How, how quickly they forgot. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So he's saying to Moses, hey, we're going to keep doing this salvation story thing, but forget them. Like it's you and me. We're starting. We're starting fresh here. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out? To kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by yourself. I will make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them. And it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned back, went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hand. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and dancing, his anger burned. So he's like God now, burning with anger. And he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them into pieces on the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. He ground it into powder, scattered it in the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They say to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me gold. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf, right? It's magic, right? So we'll, we'll end here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. So, Lord, we love you, and uh, thank you for this, this story in Scripture, this, um, this thing we want to grasp and, and understand, the ways our hearts are actually prone um, to looking at created things rather than you, the creator. And so I just pray right now that um, through this passage, um, through your words, that you would speak and that your still small voice might um, be heard in this place. Would you soften our hearts to allow us to hear truths about ourselves that maybe are a little tough, maybe a little bit tender. And I just pray, Lord, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Um, so John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idol factory. And if this passage wants to teach us something from the outside, uh, from the outset, it's that um, we as humans crave giving our attention 
giving our time, giving our resources to things, to something or to someone. Uh, our word worship, um, uh, our English word worship actually comes um, from the Old English, um, worth-ship. It means to look at something and see the value of it and to give value to it. So I have this little stupid thing that I do when I go shopping, which is like very rare, but I go and I say, I like this shirt. I try it on. I purposefully never look at the tag. Um, I try it on. I say, I like the shirt. I would pay $25 for it. It's never $25. So I always walk out empty handed. And so I am, I'm like the worst at this. I'm always like, I would pay X and it's like triple that. And so I'm like, I give up. This is a bad system I have, but I'm looking at something and I'm saying, this is what I think that it's worth. This is what I, I value it. And then the idea then would be you're giving it an ultimate value, right? If you're worshiping something, you're looking at it and you're saying, I actually value that so much. I'll give it my, my all, my full attention, my full focus, right? And as humans, um, I, I sort of laughed this week and I looked at it. I looked at the passage and I'm like, well, it's not really that logical to, to look at what God has just done for you and to say, you know what? Actually, the golden calf that we just made, that was the thing that brought us out of slavery in Egypt, right? But then I thought, Actually, we're not really all that logical about what we give our time, attention, and focus to either, right? You take social media, just as an example. Studies increasingly show that uh, the chances of experiencing um, anxiety or depression increase with the usage of social media. That's pr becoming pretty um, well-known, especially among young women. And it's just a, a sort of logic, right? Like, the facts are sort of there. And yet, in 2023, it's likely that social media usage is at an all-time high. And what is it doing? It's holding our attention, our affection, and our time. And I don't know, you know why you're here this morning or what you, what you, what you believe or what you believe when you, when you walked in, but my opinion is that um, we as humans can't not worship. Like, that's, that's actually what we're fundamentally made to do, is to give of ourselves to something, our time, our affection, and our attention, because... Um, things capture our hearts. Things capture our attention. We were actually created to do this. Um, the writer David Foster Wallace, um, who I should note was not a follower of Jesus, he wrote this. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of th uh, thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Good luck to us, right? All right, we'll, we'll, we'll finish the end of this a little bit later because I think there's, there's a lot there for us to consider. But the point is, is that um, the human heart was actually created to worship. Right? To, to look at things and to say, that is what I value and how much I value it. And so I would, I would go as far as to say, to be human is to be a worshiper. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give us a biblical overview of this thing called the, these idols, right? The human heart is, is longing to worship. And then um, maybe we'll do like a little bit of like introspection together about disclosing our idols. And then I want to I end by talking about deconstructing our idols. So in, in the text, in Exodus 32... The people of Israel are, apparently, they're waiting at the foot of, the Mount, uh, of Mount Sinai um, for Moses to come back, right? We, we don't know where Moses is, is essentially what they said. Well, the text actually tells us he's only gone for 40 days. 
And so it hasn't really been that long, not to mention they're at the foot of the mountain. They can look up. Um, Exodus 19 says that God is in the clouds on the mountain. And so it's like, where's, where, where's God? Where is Moses? And it's like, look, look up, you know, like you can, there's like a, a physical presence there in the clouds. And God, through um, Moses and his leadership, has provided for the people, brought them out of slavery, um, brought them to this covenant promise with God, and, and they're waiting for 40 days. It's like, you, you, you can't wait 40 days? And our verse 1 says this, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. Now, obviously, it sounds grievous, right? It's like, we're moving on from Yahweh, right? We're, we're, we're moving on from that. But it's actually weightier than that. Because in chapter 19, um, God and the people of Israel entering, entering into what's called a covenant relationship. And like I said before, when you read it, it reads um, sort of like vows at a wedding, an exchange of promise where God says to the people of Israel, I do. And the people of Israel respond back, I do. And so this is what it says in Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourself have seen what I did to Egypt. This is God talking to Moses. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words I want you to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And then listen to this. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. They're committed, right? They're in, right? I do, I do. The the words are, are, are there. And God is essentially saying, I saved you. You're my people. I want to live amongst you. I want to partner with you in this creation thing. And like, we're going to do this together. And right after this, Israel breaks the covenant. They say, we're going we're gonna to worship the one true only God moments later, no more, right? You know what happens after you say, I do to someone? Generally, you, you go on a honeymoon, right? Now, one commentator I was reading this week said, one way to grasp Israel's grievance is to liking their breaking of the covenant to cheating on your spouse on your honeymoon. I was like, wow, that actually makes a lot of sense, right? They couldn't even wait how quickly they forget what God had done, and yet they still had within them a longing to worship. This is the origins, or maybe a picture of the idolatrous heart. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. They served created things rather than the creator. Um, earlier this week, I don't know if some, maybe some of you saw it, there was a, a 10-day festival in um, Mumbai, and a massive idol of the Hindu god Ganesha uh, was carried through the streets. There's a picture of it here. Um, Ganesha is uh, said to be, um, to bring about prosperity and good fortune and wisdom, um, particularly at the beginning of a new endeavor. But how can you look at this and say, that's not worship, Right? giving of yourself to something in that way. And I think when I read Exodus 32, one of the important pieces to to keep in mind for us in a Western context is um, it's really easy to distance ourselves because we'd say, well, I'd never do that, right? I'd never create something that I would, 
you know, worship, right? Like this, this golden calf. But the differences um, between idols in the Old Testament and um, for us now primarily is that they used to be visible. And in our Western context, idols are not necessarily visible. But even in the prophets, um, in Ezekiel chapter 14, it says, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? And so, so Ezekiel apparently comes along and says, idols are not just on, on pagan altars, but idols are actually set up inside of the human heart. The human heart is what? An idol factory. And so um, maybe to zoom out here for just a second, um, our series, Good News Gospel, trying to understand um, our fallen nature, our brokenness, trying to make sense of um, why we can't get along with our neighbor, why we, why, 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 we, why we have tension in our relationships with our spouse, with our, with our family. Um, understanding last week, we sort of um, explained that we're all marred by sin because of this first thing called the fall. But picking up from that, the, the, the root issue is that of idols. And idols are, are, are fundamentally at the center of all sin. And what that ultimately is, and I want to show you this today so we can do some diagnostic, is it's a, actually a failure to put God first. And idolatry is also, sadly, at the center of every human heart. Idolatry is at the center of all sin and at the center of every human heart. And in, in one sense, you could say every breaking of commandments or, or every um, sin is actually the, is ultimately the breaking of the first, right? Now, if you're not sure what you believe or you're, you're wrestling, um, I would say if, if you want to come with me on a journey here for just a second, at very minimum, what, what, you, what you could say is I ascribe worth and value to something. And like I was created to do that. There's something in me that nudges um, my attention and my affection. Maybe that would be like where you're at today, and that would be like a really good first step. Um, I would go as far as to say everybody worships. Maybe you would wrestle with that a little bit. Like I do, I do have a sense in me that I want um, meaning and purpose, right? So maybe that would be a bare minimum. But if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, um, what, what you've done in saying, I'll follow Jesus, is you, you've said, I'm making a commitment to say that Jesus is the Lord of my life. When someone is your Lord, um, it's, it's like a fancy way of saying they're your boss. Right? They, they lead me. They're going to guide me. They're gonna, I, I'm, I'm going to take their guidance and their direction. And the promise of Jesus, which is so beautiful, is that he doesn't want to just be your Lord, but he's actually willing to be your Savior as well. That, that, he would, that he would be both things. That he would save you from the fallenness and the brokenness. And so you and I can come to this, um, this sort of mini-series on the fall, looking at sin, and we could say, well, you know what, That's, you know, I, I agree. I'm weak, and I'm sinful, and I'm, I'm really grateful for God's grace. Or what we can actually do, and this is what idols help us understand, is we, we can say, you know what I'm actually doing? I'm using things. I'm using people. I'm using my career. I'm using work. I'm using money. I'm using whatever it is to give me meaning and purpose, where actually I said that Jesus is Lord of my life and, and he should fundamentally be the one that gives me meaning and purpose, and then I can go out and do those good things. And so it's a change of motivation, and generally the problem that we have is we don't go deep enough. And so would you be willing to go deep enough? So here's, here's what a little bit of maybe some diagnostic or disclosing some of these idols. When you go back to the people of Israel, how do they describe what an idol will do um, this isn't on the screen, but verse 1 says, Come, make us gods who will go before us. 
Who's going to lead us? Right? Who's going to give us direction? Who's going to give us hope and a future? That's what they're longing for. They're a worshiping people looking for that type of direction. And then in verse 4, it just says this little phrase, which I thought was fascinating. These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. They, they all know that that's not true. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to fit themselves into a story to make sense of their world. They're looking for guidance and direction, a way to understand the past, a way to understand the future. How do I, how do I simply exist in this world as a person with hope? This is how you do it. You find a story to attach yourself to. And it's beginning for the people of Israel to expose their true desire. So how do we disclose our idols? And I use the word disclose really purposefully here because um, disclosing means making, making something known, meaning it was already there. My opinion is that the idol is already there. We just have to identify and begin to question it. And so how do we begin to do that? Tim Keller says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. I keep doing this, but like, how's that for like a first date, like quote, you know, like you're just out there on a date and you're like, so tell me, you know, what do you feel like gives you the most meaning and purpose in life? And if it failed you, you would be miserable. All right. Putting yourself out there in that way. You, you would do it. I like it. I appreciate that. If I have that, I'll feel my life has meaning. My life only has meaning if I'm highly productive and getting a lot done. That might be like a work idolatry. My life only has meaning if my race or my culture is recognized as superior. That's like racial idolatry, which often in our culture leads to racism. My life only has meaning if I've uh, attained a certain amount of wealth, financial freedom, or luxury possessions. It could be a form of material idolatry. My life only has meaning if my parents or my family is happy and happy with me. That might be a familial idolatry. My life only has meaning if I'm completely free from obligation and responsibilities, especially to others. My life only has meaning if that one person, right, loves me. That's like a relationship idolatry. And so what, what are we doing by naming some of these things? We're beginning to attack our motivations, and we're leveraging them to try and understand actually our heart's desire. Now, again, we don't out front say these things, but they're undergirding and, and working in our heart. Um, here's another way to think about it. This chart is um, also from Tim Keller's. It's really, really helpful. Um, and some of the things I actually just talked about sort of exist underneath this. But if you seek power, like success and winning and influence, then your greatest nightmare is going to be humiliation. And what you can begin to do is, is, is trace this backwards, right? If, so if you, if you have nightmares in night where you're being humiliated, maybe the idol is the form of power. People around you often feel used. Your problem emotion might be anger. If you seek approval, your greatest nightmare would be rejection. People around you might feel smothered, and your problem emotion would be cowardice. If you seek comfort, um, your greatest nightmare is stress and the demands. People often around you uh, feel neglect, and your problem emotion would be boredom. And then if you seek control, that's uncertain. Uh, your greatest nightmare would be uncertainty. People around you often feel condemned, and your problem emotion might be worry. Again, I think it's, I, 
I started doing this this week, and I thought, I don't want to interact with this anymore. <laughs> like, this is, this is too much work, right? Like, I, I feel like I'm like, man, I'm in that category. I'm in this category in this relationship, right? I'm in this category with my work. I'm in this category with um, my money. But, but just maybe just be open, right, just for a second to hear this. Do it backwards. So say you struggle with the sin of greed, right? It shows up in your finances, um, Greed would be the love or the desire for riches or earthly possessions, right? You, can, you, you actually can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their money. This is, a, this is actually a Jesus principle. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He, he doesn't say it the other way. That's how we think of it normally. We think, well, let me see the person's heart, and I'll see what they treasure. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you want to know what somebody really loves, look at their bank statements. Like it's, it's, it's actually that simple because they're giving or trading their money for the thing that they value, and I know, I know in this like, specific season um, with this like, cost of living crisis, you're like, I paid my rent and ate a bagel this month. So like, that's, you know, this is what I love, I guess, a house. Um, how do we use money, though? We generally use it. I, I would, this is very, very general, okay? And I want to I leave this chart up because I want to chase this down this way. We generally leverage money for status or security. And th- these can actually fit into two. Each one can fit into different categories here. We, if we're using money as a means of status, we can be using it for a means of power. And so we're accumulating money to use it to gain um, power in certain interests in, in certain circles, right? But also in that, you can also use money as a means of approval. Look at me. Look at the things I've got. Look how I've made it in this world. Look at my new outfit, my new shoes, whatever it is. It can be a means of approval, But the other side that we generally use money for is security, right? And so this type of person says, I'm just going to keep, I'm going to keep saving. I'm going to keep saving. I'm going to keep saving, right? I'm so cheap. I clip coupons and, you know, the bank account is like adding up. They are seeking comfort. I will have enough money. If something comes along in my life, I will be safe. I will be secure, right? And this is starting to hit a little closer to home, right? Like in, in thinking about this. Let's try a different one. What about like the sin of gossip, right? Unconstrained talk about people that are generally not there and about details that are not yet confirmed, right? Um, Some of us in the room, we're like, okay, I know how to do that, right? Why do we do that? It's fun, right? Okay, but not, but dig deeper, right? We do it possibly because we want someone else's approval, right? We can be sitting and having a conversation with someone and we're actually trying to gain their approval by talking about that person right? Or you can do it as a means of control, right? Like, like I, I'm going to actually, I'm talking about this other person. You know why? Because I want to feel more in control. Like, their life is really bad. Mine is only kind of bad, right? And so we're using something like gossip as a means of control. And, or that could comfort us too, right? That could give us a bit of comfort in our life. They're screwed up. I'm screwed up, just not as much. You could do this with anything. You chase the behavior down, but what you actually, and I think this is really important when we think about idols, is start with the behavior. Sure, that's fine, right? And, and I think we're so prone to making um, the Christian faith like behavior modification, but chase it down. What is it that your heart is actually longing for outside of the person of Jesus? Then you're actually getting at the real root of the problem, you have an addiction, work, pornography, alcohol, are you using that as a means of comfort? Are you using that as a means of control? Actually, answering that question with an addiction can go a really long way in figuring out how to stop 
that addiction. And what are these ultimately? Ultimately, as you chase the behavior down, they're idols. And they're not all necessarily bad things. Work, material possessions, relationships, but taken too far, they're idols. And idols will break your heart. They will break your heart. This is not, it, it's not fun in the meantime because it's ultimately breaking your heart. Or I like what um, David Foster Wallace said before. He said, it will eat you alive. And so here, here's what he, he went on to say, which is really, really helpful. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Isn't this just true? Worship power. You'll feel weak and afraid. You will need even more power over others to keep your fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Isn't this so true? When those things become so central to us, we always end up feeling the opposite way because we're so consumed with it. And if you and I are looking to creative thing, created things to give us meaning and purpose that only God can, can give us, and those things will eventually fail to deliver on their promises, guess what it does? It ends up breaking your heart, right? If I say, I'm going to be, I'm longing for this relationship. I got to get into this relationship. Well, you know what happens in relationships? People fail you. And so if that is the thing you so long for, you get into that relationship and you're like, I'm finally secure. I made it here. And that person hurts you. It breaks your heart, right? Because it was the thing you thought was going to fill you up completely. And so let me give you a couple questions here, and then, and then we'll, we'll move on. If you're trying to figure this out, this is like good coffee shop, headphones kind of questions here. What do I really want? It's a really good diagnostic question. Jesus actually asked this. Um, I think it's Mark 10 or John 10. I can't remember. John, um, Jesus comes to this group of disciples, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? In the original language, the question is this. What do you want? And I think this is a really, really, it's, maybe you say it this way. This is the number one question of discipleship. What is it that you actually want when you're coming to Jesus? What, what do you want? Here's the next one. I don't want to chase that down too far. What do you worry about most? What do you daydream about? What do you wake up at 3 a.m. consumed with? That will tell you a lot about what your idols likely are. And this is my favorite one. What prayer, unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? Right? Like these, are the, the, these are the things we pray for, and what if it never got answered? Would that make you question your relationship with God? Would it make you um, think about turning away from God? Um, what do I really want? Um, I, sometimes writing sermons is so terrible. Um, you, just, you, you interact with this stuff all week, and, um, and I, one of the things I kept thinking for myself was, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, um, I think about God, I pray, I preach, I lead community groups, and I'm, I'm, I'm like doing like right religious activity, you know, through the week, meeting with people, talking about maybe how they see um, God at work in their day-to-day and in, in their life. And I'm, I'm like focusing on the work of God, right? Like practicing the ministry. And I thought, at the end of the day, what is it that I actually desire inside of that? Like, is it that I actually desire being busy um, in the midst of all that? Or do I, at the end of the day, can I say, I did all that and I did it because I just want to simply sit in the presence of God and be content there. 
right? Because externally it looks right, right? But at the end is, is God the focus? And I, for me, it's just I, stuff I have to, I have to take and, and to think on. And so I think as we're doing this, let's, let's turn the corner here to this last part, which is the deconstruction of idols. Um, the word deconstruction has been like a very um, big word in Christian circles for like maybe like the last three, four years, something like that. And I thought, this is actually a really good usage of the word. How do we actually turn inwardly and say, what are, what are some of the things that, I've, that have been set up in my heart that actually need to be torn down? And the cool part is if, you, if we take a page out of Moses' book, we deconstruct the idols. Do you remember what he did in the passage? He took the idol, he burned it, he ground it into a powder, and then he had the Israelites drink it. There was like, so, in, in the commentaries I was reading, there was like so many ideas um, my fa- about why he had them drink it. But like my favorite one was that um, when they drank it and like they went to the bathroom, it was like, your idols are crap, is essentially what like the, the commentary was saying. And I was like, actually, that makes a lot of sense. He, he was feeding it back to them so it would actually come out as feces. And so we deconstruct. How do we do that? And we do that by repentance and rejoicing. Repentance is the, the biblical way to, to respond to the gospel, right? It's, it's I'm, I'm turning, and I'm going a new direction. I'm going 180 degrees. And over and over again, I was exploring a bunch of different scriptures this week. Um, the, the talk was about turning from something, but always to something. And I think that was really, really important, right? Romans um, 8 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And the really important thing here is, um, if, we're, if we're really going to do the, the work of what's called repentance in the Bible, is we're saying no to something so that we can say yes to something else, right? And the language is really intense here. And I, 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 I think I know why, right? Putting to death repentance, you will die. And I think the reason the language is so intense is because you and I know what it's like to have a negative behavior in our life. And that negative loop or pattern is like over and over and over again, where you would come to your life, you would say, I don't want to do that anymore. Like I'm, I'm tired of, of doing that. And what do we do? We go back to it again. And we go back to it again. And we go back to it again. And so the language is like, okay, in order to not go back to it again, you have to put it to death. And so we're repenting, we're turning away, we're going a new direction, but in joy, we're turning to something else. Paul says in Colossians 3, he says, since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says it backwards here. Put to death, then, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So do you see the combination? It's, it's put it to death, be done with these things, turn away from them. But how do you actually do that? In this passage, he says, well, actually, you do it by setting your, your mind on things above. You do it by setting your heart on things above. Something is taking the idol's place. We have to replace it, and you do it by rejoicing in something else. You're saying, this is giving me fulfillment and meaning and purpose, and it's like, for a time, but then when we turn away from that, we have to fill that. Um, and actually, in, in um, addiction recovery circles, um, this is like a very common thing, is addiction replacement. 
right? Um, my grandfather came um, to faith through AA, and um, we have an AA on our block. And what do you what do you always see at AA? There's, there's it, it's it's trading of addictions. They're better, and I think this is really important. We need to honor progress instead of alcohol. It's cigarettes and coffee. And you know what? Let's honor that progress, right? Like if you're doing meth and you start you know smoking weed, like. I'm a thumbs up on that, all right? That's just me. That's not in the Bible. Um, but like, I, I think we should honor, honor progress in that way. And so we actually need to take the, the pattern of the behavior and we have to fill it with something. Let's fill it with something good. Otherwise, we're just going to have to keep turning back and turning back and turning back. Set your heart on things above. And then look at this. And I'll, I'll end here. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. What's happening? I'm growing and understanding. I'm, 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 I'm under, I love that he, uh, Paul does both, right? Like set your mind on things above, set your heart on things above. Take both of these things and say, you know what? That wasn't working. But you know, there is something that can and you can actually just rejoice in it. I'm resting in what Jesus has done. I actually, um, I think one of the things about um, coming to church and like giving of our, um, our attention, our time, this thing worship is actually the, the thing that actually um, teaches our hearts to rejoice, right? We, we, we learn it. Like, it takes time to figure out, you know what? Actually, Jesus is more beautiful than my idols. This thing gives me greater fulfillment than my idols. What Jesus has done, he brought the Israelites out of slavery, and then what he did on the cross, are you kidding me? Nothing could give me more fulfillment than those things. All I can do is rejoice in this good news gospel. And you know what? I don't even want those things anymore because I'm so rejoicing in these things. And so here's where I'll end today. I want to end with um, a corporate and personal um, prayer of confession. And so it'll come up on the screen here. We'll say this part together. And then once we're done saying this together, I just want to leave like a minute of silence. um, So you can begin to think about that. um, And then I'll pray uh, after that. So let's say this together, and then I'll leave some silence. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.